Thanks so much for joining us for our fourth episode of Global in the Granite State. In this episode, we hear from Brigadier General Donald Bolduck about his time in the military. We also had the opportunity to sit down with a Russian journalist to talk about his experiences on the International Visitor Leadership Program that brought him to New Hampshire to learn about U.S. foreign policy. Finally, we spoke with Michael Pappas to gather his insights into Brexit and the challenges that it has posed. Let's get started. by Brigadier General Don Bolduck. He will be speaking with us on Wednesday, April 3rd about his time in the military, his experiences abroad, and his experiences in leadership. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Tim. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit about what you will be talking about on April 3rd at 6 p.m.? Yes, I plan on talking about our policy strategy and operational approach in Africa and how a lack of policy, a lack of good strategy has caused the expansion of violent extremist organizations into safe havens in Africa, has contributed to a decline in quality of governance, has created a situation in which the development opportunities and resource competition and increased immigration and migration out of African countries has caused economic issues. One thing that I really want to get a sense from you on is during your time in Afghanistan, you were well known for the Village Stability Operations Programs. Can you talk a little bit about how that program works? Yes. The program actually was enabled, success was enabled due to a change in strategy. It began in about the middle of 2009 through 2010, in which General McChrystal became the commander in Afghanistan. You know, he became the commanding officer, the four-star commander there. And he wanted to change how we were approaching our strategy in Afghanistan. And he wanted a more population-centric, comprehensive approach. And so Special Operation Forces was tasked to put together a rural program that leveraged historical aspects of how Afghans protected themselves for thousands of years, how they protected themselves against Alexander the Great, how they protected themselves against the British Empire, and how they protected themselves against the Soviets during the Soviet invasion. And we hadn't been doing this until this change in policy and change in strategy. So we created the Village Stability Operations, which is a bottom-up. And when I say bottom-up, we start in the villages and we do the assessments and we go into a village and we work with the village elders and the tribal elders and we get the other villages to work together. And they develop a security system that is reinforced by Afghan local police. And the villagers are nominated by the village and tribal elders, and they live and work and protect the villages in which their families reside in. And by linking these villages together, you expand concentrically your security over time. And the Taliban and other violent extremist organization groups need the rural areas in order to operate. By June of 2013, we had a very successful program in which more than 80% of the rural areas were under the control of the Afghan government through the local areas at the village level to the district level and the provincial level, which was hugely successful. And this really caused a problem for the Taliban, in which in 
2011, Omar had said, if the Americans keep doing this, we don't have an answer for it. And it's really going to interfere with our strategy. And we saw that. And it continued until a change in policy by the Obama administration and by the senior military leaders in Afghanistan. And when they discontinued this program, in short order, that security that we had gained had reversed. And now more than 70% of Afghanistan is under control of the Taliban and other groups. And so, you know, this is something that I was quite vocal about in the middle of 2013 while I was on active duty, but you know, these decisions are going to really reverse everything that we've gained, and we had all the assessments and studies to show that, and now we're in a completely different situation in Afghanistan, and it's very unfortunate. A lot of what we're hearing out of Afghanistan right now is that the U.S. government has to negotiate with the Taliban to bring resolution to this long-standing conflict. What are your thoughts on that based on all of your efforts and your compatriots' efforts in that country? First of all, I think it's a tragedy that all the sacrifice that's, that's been made, not only by the U.S., but by our Afghan partners uh, and by our international partners, is, I think, completely been undermined by poor policy and strategy by senior civilians and senior military leaders. And my opinion is someone needs to answer for that. But in the meantime, we have policies and strategies that I don't believe support filling one more body bag or hospital bed. That's what I really take issue with. I would go back tomorrow to serve if asked, but I would also ask that whatever we're doing warrants the sacrifice that we're asking people to make. And at this point, it doesn't. And we're at a tactical stalemate. The current strategy that we have is not going to change that tactical stalemate. And so we have no other choice than to make the best deal we can with the Taliban. There can be some very good things that come out of this. Taliban are, are Afghan. They don't want ISIS and any other group in their country any more than they want the Americans and the large international contingent that's there. So if done properly, we may see at some point Taliban leadership running Afghanistan, but at the same time, we may get you know the opportunity for stability, the opportunity to support with development, uh, the opportunity to ensure that it does not become a safe haven for violent extremist organizations, which is you know one of our big priorities, and that we bring some stability to the region between Pakistan, India, Afghanistan, and China and Russia. We can get a big win out of this peace deal, but at the same time, we have to recognize that the road that we got here was paved with really bad policy and strategy. We need to make sure we take account of that so it doesn't happen again. Shifting away from Afghanistan over to Africa, where you've also spent a fair amount of time, many people are surprised to hear that the U.S. has such a strong presence on the continent. Can you talk a little bit about the strategic goals of the U.S. government in Africa? Well, I think ultimately the U.S. goals over there are, one, to promote democracy, to create stability through improved governance, and to build infrastructure and create the capability of our African partners to be able to deliver goods and services and take care of people inside their countries. And another goal would be that each African country realizes that this is a regional effort, they can't do it by themselves, and that they need to work together to support each other's security, good governance, uh, and development opportunities. Back in 
February of this past year, General Waldhauser said that they were planning to remove about 130 special operators from the continent. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as A, a good policy, and B, what sort of impact does that have for the U.S.'s strategic goals on the continent? Based off of my time as a SOC Africa commander, what we tried to do long term was get to a point where we could reduce our soft force structure by being able to accomplish some intermediate objectives that General Waldhauser's you know, AFRICOM campaign plan, theater campaign plan is what it's called, called for. And so when I when I left command in June of 2017, we had a solid plan to do that. Now, if the withdrawal of these 130 special operations troops is connected to the accomplishment of the objectives that were laid out in the long-term plan that we have, then I would say that is spot on, right? If it is a knee-jerk reaction to the politicizing of the ambush in Niger, resulting in the death of four Americans and eight Nigerian soldiers, then I would say it's a bad plan. Right. And I'm not sure which one it is. I would like to say that it's based off of a long-term plan that we had put together to be able to draw down forces, but that's never been explained clearly, has it? I've read the testimony. I've read as much as I possibly can. You know that the Joint Staff in the, sec- the Office of the Secretary of Defense directed a drawdown of 25% of you know soft forces, and that appeared to be a number based off of zero assessment. If that's the case, then it's a bad plan because we're only going to make it worse. And my fear for Africa is that if we don't support our African partners in these countries to be able to establish security in the local areas and at least neutralize these violent extremist organization threats that they're dealing with, and then build competent local governance to do it, police and civil administration, they are never going to be able to establish the stability that they need in order to be able to support the people in their countries. And what's going to happen is we're going to have an economic and resource disaster on our hands. You know, if we think people are being killed by violent extremist organizations. We've seen nothing yet when people can't get water and food and, you know, live from one day to the next. And we're on a timeline of about 10 to 15 years from that, I believe. But, heck, I could be wrong, (laughs) you know, and I'm willing to admit that. The facts are what they are, given the instability, given the the refugee camps that have popped up on borders, in the folks that are leaving Africa in droves, the largest number of people supporting the fight in Afghanistan, and Syria and Iraq and in other places come from come from Africa, mostly from North Africa, but from Africa in general. They're all coming back home, the ones that have survived, with a much better understanding of how to organize, train, and fight. So that's going to have a, a, you know, an impact as well. Finally, I know that since you've retired, you've really taken on the fight against stigmatization of PTS. Can you talk a little bit about that and and what you're currently up to? Yes. So I belong to a number of veteran organizations, private organizations that are out to assist our veterans with post-traumatic stress, TBI, pain management issues, sleep disorder, all these root causes to what is causing our veterans to have the problems. And then, of course, I'm out to change the VA system. It's too bureaucratic. It's not effective. You know, its leadership is not effective. They've got great people I've met in many VA medical centers, to include the one that I get my care from in Manchester, New Hampshire. Great people, but leadership 
is lacking in many areas. And, you know, I just came back from Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania, UPenn Medicine, or conference there on this, and I met a number of people from the VA there in Philadelphia, right across the street from UPenn. They have a great relationship, one of the better VA medical centers. And, I mean, they shared with me all kinds of stories about the ineffectiveness and the inefficiencies of, of the VA. And so, we, we really got to fix that, you know, and I realized that the administration has put a priority on that, but we haven't seen much change yet. As I talk to veterans all over the country and mostly around New England, specifically in New Hampshire. So it was my passion on active duty. I recognized what post-traumatic stress was doing to me, traumatic brain injury, most of all, not getting treatment for it. So I made it a priority for myself to do so. And actually, I wouldn't have done that if it wasn't for my wife, you know, kind of drew the line in the sand after she watched me suffer with this for a number of years. So anyways, I did that and I realized I'm a much better version of myself. And if as a general officer, I don't know how to take care of myself. I got no business taking care of others. So I said, you know what? I got to muster up the moral courage here to come out and say, hey, listen, I have these issues. I know many of you have these issues and we need to put something in place where we address them so you do not feel stigmatized because you're seeking help. And we did that and we were very successful. And I came out in the New York Times about it as well. I made that my, my mission while I was on active duty, and when I was retired, I wanted to carry it over because I knew you know, now as a veteran and a retired senior leader that my voice would have some positive impact, and if I shared my story, that would as well. My wife and I have joined forces to do this because she tells the family side of it, and I tell my side of it, with the hopes of helping as many veterans as we can. I think it's working real well. And so we're very proud of the fact that our veterans now in larger numbers are going to seek help. One of the things that we need to do, though, is we need to change the legislation so that it applies to other eras of veterans, Vietnam, uh, Korea, and World War II. Right now, there is legislation that only specifically applies to 9-11 veterans at the exclusion of other veterans. There's also a need for us to look at our first responders because the suicide rates among our first responders who are suffering with these things. And when you look at the ratio of combat veterans that become first responders, paramedics, firemen, and police officers, that too is something that we need to raise awareness of, create the understanding of exactly what this is, and get the folks the help they need so we can have stronger communities. It's really important work, and I thank you for all your efforts in making this a top priority for our country. So thank you again for joining us. We are here with Brigadier General Donald Bolduck, who will be speaking to the World Affairs Council on April 3rd. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thank you, Tim. As a part of his internship at the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, Michael Pappas has been following Brexit for us. We sat down with him on April 1st to talk about the fallout from the March 29th votes. Here is what he learned. We are here with Michael Pappas, World Affairs Council of New Hampshire intern, who has been doing a lot of research into Brexit for us. And we really appreciate you trying to unravel the craziness that is going on over there. So thank you for joining us. Yeah, no problem. I really appreciate you having me on. I've certainly gone in headfirst into all of this, and it's a lot to sift through, to be sure. Can you give us a quick refresher on Brexit and what it is? 
back in 2016, the United Kingdom held a referendum vote for its voting public on whether they wanted to leave the European Union or not. And the leave vote won with 51.9% of the vote, which I believe was about 17.4 million of the voting public. Eight months later, Prime Minister Theresa May officially triggered Article 50, March 28th, 2017, which was the legal mechanism in order to officially leave the European Union. And after that date, it triggered a two-year period for the UK to negotiate a deal with the EU on how both would like to see the UK to transition out of the European Union. And that two-year deadline actually was supposed to pass a couple of days ago on March 29th, but because the British Parliament has on several occasions now voted down the deal that Theresa May negotiated with the European Union, the Parliament and Theresa May requested an extension in order to find an official deal. And that extension is until April 12th? Yes. So it's partially conditional. It's April 12th. If Parliament cannot agree on a deal, and if they do accept a deal, then it will be extended to May 22nd. So what are the big challenges to giving a deal done? Why can the British Parliament not get together on this? I feel like a lot of the problem has come from one simple word, which is mandate. And part of that is all the members of parliament sort of believe that the vote in 2016 gave them a certain mandate on what the public wanted. That vote was simply a yes or no vote on whether the UK public wanted out of the EU or not. And since then, there are so many options as to how best to leave the EU. There's a soft Brexit, which maintains close connections still between the UK and the EU. There's a hard Brexit, which severs a lot of those ties. There's people that still believe that it's possible to revoke Article 50 and the UK to remain in the EU. And there's a sector of the parliament that believes that a no-deal Brexit is the best way to leave the European Union, which overnight the UK would immediately be out with no deals in place, no transition period. So every side basically argues that it's what the people voted for. But all the voting public said is yes or no, not which option they wanted. That's been the inability to come to consensus so far. One of the bigger issues, it sounds like, is what to do with the Northern Ireland-Ireland border. Can you right. talk a little bit about what's going on there? One part of Theresa May's deal that she negotiated with the EU is a clause called the Irish Backstop, which basically says that the UK would enter into a temporary customs union after leaving the EU, but they will enter this customs union with the EU to prevent a hard border between Northern Ireland, which is a part of the UK, and the Republic of Ireland. This is sort of necessitated because of the 1998 Good Friday Agreements, which after three decades of violence over Northern Ireland between separatists and unionists, they came to this agreement. And part of that agreement to stop the violence was to prevent any hard border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. The real problem is the EU has in place laws that dictate that there must be a hard border between the EU and non-members, unless they're within a customs union or the bigger single market or common market. So this backstop has met a lot of criticism because there are people that believe that the UK should stay in a permanent customs union. A lot of the opposition to it is people believe that the temporary part of it will indefinitely keep the UK shackled, so to speak, to the EU when they believe that the mandate is that the UK shouldn't be beholden to the EU at all. One of the most comical parts of this, <laughs> the day after the Brexit referendum vote, the most Googled term in the country was 
what is Brexit, helping to indicate that perhaps people didn't really know what they were voting for or really understand the consequences of what they were voting for. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned it a little bit, but what is the possibility that there would be a second referendum to see if people still want to leave the EU? Well, it's certainly been an interesting line of thinking to follow because there's always been a sort of undertone of people considering the idea of a second referendum. Because of how the first vote was just a yes or no to leave, a lot of talk has happened over a second vote as a confirmation. Sort of, this is the deal we could get. This is the deal we negotiated. This is what the terms we will leave the EU on. Do you want this or do you want to stay in the EU? It does seem like momentum has started to build among the public. I know a lot of public opinion polls, several have said that if a second referendum were to happen again, Remain might win this time around. And even recently, a petition on the parliamentary petitions website reached 6 million, I believe, signatures online that wanted Parliament to debate revoking Article 50 outright. Obviously, that's further past the second referendum idea, but the fact that revocation of Article 50 got that many signatures necessitated debate in Parliament. But then you run into the sort of debate in Parliament that following the Brexit vote both the major parties, the Conservatives and the Labour Party, agreed as parties to honour the results of the referendum. So now you have the debate over the party saying we should honour the results of the referendum, but then people arguing, well, shouldn't the voting public be able to change their mind? Then that runs into the problem that Theresa May's own Brexit deal has been voted on three times in Parliament, hoping for Parliament to change their minds. So the debate has come over why is the voting public not allowed to change their mind? So you mentioned Theresa May and her historic failures to get any of these deals passed. Um, Very much historic. What is the general consensus on her future as prime minister? I think recently, last week, there was a development that prior to the third vote, uh, she made a declaration that she would step down as prime minister if her deal was passed. Of course, we know that third deal did not pass once again. So now you have the unfortunate double whammy of there's still no deal agreed on. Parliament still hasn't reached a consensus. And now Theresa May has officially put out there the idea that a conservative party leadership contest is in the cards. So now you have government ministers vying for the possibility of that position if or when Theresa May does step down or in a certain case, if another no confidence vote is brought forward and she is removed from her post as prime minister. And generally, tension for a leadership position is not the best way to reach consensus at such a time. How that plays out is still unclear. If there is no deal on April 12th, what do we end up with at that point? If there's a no deal, a lot of people say that this would be the most detrimental to the United Kingdom's economy. So what basically is enacted is currently as an EU member, the UK has the privilege of being part of the trade deals that the EU negotiated with other countries as a trading bloc. I believe there's several dozen trade deals with outside countries that the EU has that the UK currently benefits from. But in the case of a no deal, all those deals that the UK has as of yet not renegotiated would immediately be off the table. They wouldn't exist in the UK anymore. I believe out of the several dozen trade deals that would not roll over, the UK has only renegotiated about a dozen of them. So immediately on a no deal, all those ones that have not been renegotiated don't apply to the UK anymore. And it defaults to the World Trade Organization's trade regulations. 
And another problem with this is no deal means the UK also hasn't negotiated a trade deal with the European Union, which is huge for their trading. There's a lot of problems with this in that the EU has pretty stark trade regulations for a lot of products coming in from non-member nations. I had read an article about some small thing that most people wouldn't think about is that the EU has regulations on decontamination requirements for shipping pallets. And then in the case of a no deal, the UK doesn't have enough compliant shipping pallets that would fit the non-member requirements that they currently fit under the EU requirements as a member, but not for the non-member. So you have trouble shipping into the EU. You have the EU who says it may take up to six months to approve the UK to import their food products, which in a certain case of, say, sheep, their largest market is the EU. So then you run into immediately this four million sheep with nowhere to go. And the problem with a lot of this is you have people principled that say Brexit means Brexit. So no deal Brexit is still within the realm of what the people voted for. And then you have the people laying out the economic argument where it's like, while that may be true, do we want to put our country at this incredible disadvantage overnight? Any final thoughts or are you willing to start your predictions now? It's really tough to say because I would say even hourly, the, the tone of what parliament may choose can shift as we're recording this. I believe in about an hour debate today ends and there's currently four amendments on the docket for parliament to vote on. One of which is a customs union for the UK and the EU. One is another common market. The third one is to put in place the framework for a confirmatory public vote, a second referendum. And then a fourth one would be to revoke Article 50 if a no deal is imminent. It does seem that Labour will be voting for the first three, and they'll be whipping the party to be voting for Customs Union, Common Market, and the public vote. I do believe it seems like Customs Union, at the very least, will maybe get a majority tonight, which in that case, we'll see that Theresa May needs to renegotiate with the European Union and go back. But the other problem with some of these amendments is they don't leave in that a longer extension needs to go in place to allow the negotiation for these. So there's so many small details that I don't know. I really don't know. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for doing all this research. And no problem. Giving some insights. So we'll look forward to the, the next update and see where this all ends up. So we'll see you. what happens. I appreciate it. Finally, we took the time to sit down with one of our international visitors, a Russian journalist who came to the U.S. to learn about U.S. foreign policy. We are here with Maxim Glikin, the deputy editor-in-chief of TV Rain Moscow. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? I've been a journalist for 25 years. Uh, bulk of the time I worked in different newspapers. Uh, for the last three years I've been working on television. And, uh, my sphere of interest always lay in uh, political journalism. Can you tell us a little bit also about your trip here to the U.S., uh, the International Visitor Leadership Program? 
Я с радостью открыл предложение. Primarily grateful for the opportunities to meet people in think tanks, be they Brookings Institute or Rand uh, or even here in New Hampshire, we had a meeting at the college politics and elections. It's all very interesting. Uh, I think uh, it, it really gives you a chance to, to see how the political system is working. And it provides you access to the people who work uh, in that system, so you can see and discuss how the things are done firsthand. So I know you said that you've been to the U.S. several times before as a tourist, but has this trip changed your perceptions of the U.S. in any way? Yeah, indeed. Uh, and there are actually two uh, points to be made. One of them. The last time I was in the United States as a tourist was almost 20 years ago, in the late 90s. So coming now, uh, I've had a chance to see how uh, life has changed, how everything changed, including prices. <laughs> and, uh, and secondly, of course, now I'm in the middle of the things. I have been able to uh, gain access to these uh, people where I own my own. And uh, so it's a completely different experience than the first time. So it's quite interesting to be in the middle and to see the participants of the political process because this is something that interests me a lot. Yeah, and I'm sure New Hampshire probably would not have been high on your, your list of places to visit for tourism, but we're glad you're here and have the opportunity to see what we have to offer. So do you envision creating any partnerships with the people that you have met here on the program, uh, whether it's your fellow visitors or, or people you've met here in the U.S.? 
Да, я Yes, indeed. Yes, I, I would like very much uh, our relations to go beyond accidental acquaintance, so to speak. Uh, it's very important for our TV uh, station to have experts uh, in the United States who could explain what's going on every time there is a question. Uh, Russians are very interested in uh, Russian-American uh, relationships, on the one hand, and uh, in the things that are happening in the United States, on the other hand. And of course, it's it's great that I have an opportunity to uh, to talk, uh, to ask opinion of all the wonderful people that I've met here. I've made some initial kind of contacts uh, with them, and uh, I hope very much that they will be uh, supporting our uh, journalistic activities later on. Yeah, I'm sure people will be very happy to help out. We had one of our home hospitality hosts who was contacted by a German journalist uh, in the last presidential primary to talk about what the heck is going on with our presidential politics here. So I know people are very, very interested in being involved and staying in touch. So do reach out. But speaking of Russian-American relations, we hear a lot about Russia here in the U.S. Can you give us your insights into the current state of things, particularly around press freedoms? No, yeah, I don't think I'm, I'm going to say anything new here. I mean, there are all the international ratings, including the freedom rating and the freedom of speech rating that Russia, I think, is... Uh, well described by. I'm very thankful for the fact that uh, myself as well as my colleagues who are my fellow participants uh, on this program and they represent different media outlets, uh, radio, uh, newspaper, traditional print outlet as well as internet based uh, platforms. So I'm very glad that they have had an opportunity to, to see what the real freedom of press means, uh, how it works out uh, in terms of everyday functions, operations, and conceptually. And hopefully, myself included, will try to, uh, or at least strive to, implement all the things back home, because uh, media freedom, of course, depends on the journalists primarily. It's up to them to take up the position of uh, independence and one final question for you. What are your feelings about the International Visitor Leadership Program? And is it an important program that other people should consider taking the time to do? Well, yes, I think from my perspective as an international journalist, uh, someone who's interested in politics, uh, it, it's a wonderful program. First of all, I pretty much got answers to all the questions I've had on the one hand. On the other hand, I have extended um, the base of uh, potential sources that I can contact in the future. So I don't think any other program or any other visit would provide such uh, big opportunities for me. So I think it's, it's a wonderful program and I'm all for it. Вероятно, признательны организаторам этой программы. 
Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Again, we are here with Maxim Glokin from TV Rain in Moscow. Thank you again. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. We really appreciate your support. Please do visit our website to find out more about the Council and our programs. It can be found at www.wacnh.org.